Welcome to the Afikra Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today we have another special episode in our series, Exploring Palestine. This episode is being recorded on December 21st uh, at 6 o'clock uh, Palestine time, 2023. You're probably listening to this after the new year. Um, so just keep that in mind when we talk about what we're talking about, just in case things have changed uh, pretty dramatically. Our special guest today is Andy Clarno, who is an associate professor of sociology and black studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and is the author of Neoliberal Apartheid, Palestine, Israel, and South Africa after 1994. Andy, welcome to Africa. Thank you. Thanks for having me, uh, Mikey. Really excited to be here. You know, people talk about um, there being apartheid in Palestine. You hear that all the time. Uh, and like Jimmy, Car Jimmy Carter famously came out with that book, P uh, Apartheid Not Peace or Peace Not Apartheid. Or, mm -hmm. um, and I feel like this is a term that is really not understood. Um, so let me just ask you mm -hmm. if you can talk a little bit about the origin of that term and what it what you think a, a useful working definition is of of apartheid? What does apartheid mean? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mikey. That's a, a really good way to start. Um, so the term apartheid uh, came out of the South African political context um, in the late 1940s. There was mobilizations by the by an Afrikaner ethnic group, uh, Dutch descended peoples living in South Africa, settlers. Uh, who had been the, the, the original European settlers of South Africa, but over time the British had taken over the land and, uh, and, and, and by the, by the, by the mid 20th century, the, the Afrikaners were feeling that they were a persecuted minority by the British, uh, and organized for a, a nationalist political movement to establish control over South Africa, um, and took their ideology to the polls in 1948 when the, the Afrikaner National Party won the elections in South Africa and began to institute a system that they referred to as apartheid, which means separateness uh, in, in the Dutch, uh, in the Afrikaner language. It's, it, most of it wasn't new. Most of the policies that had been in place in South Africa for, for decades or longer, um, the, the type of political system that they set up was based on, you know, explicit white supremacy, racial segregation, and a system of racial capitalism, which involved, you know, the, kind of the forced dis dispossession and displacement of, of the of local African populations, uh, they're coercing them to working in you know, for very low wages in difficult and dangerous conditions, uh, mining for gold and diamonds, working on farms and fields, and then working in, in industry as I grew, um, and reserving particular jobs for, for white workers, right? Working, reserving the high paid managerial positions for, for the white working class. Um, so, I mean, I think that all three of those aspects of the system are, are really key. The, the, you know, the explicit white supremacy, the racial segregation, and then the system of racial capitalism. Um, yeah, that, 
and, and over time, what, what that looked like in South Africa, right, was, um, you know, in concentrating the, the African populations into small fragmented territories that were initially called homelands and later referred to as Bantu stands, where the, the, the African, yeah, it, it was, it was concentrating, you know, African population within these very small pieces of territory so that the rest of the land could be settled and controlled by, by the, the white European settlers. Uh, and then establishing a, a system of, of migrant labor where, where black workers would, you know, be officially resident in the, these homelands, but would come to the, to the cities, to the places where the mines were, where the factories were, uh, on a, on a permit system. You know, they would need to get work permits in order to be able mm. to come to the cities on a temporary basis to be able to work in the factories or in the mines. Um, this was, system was enforced through very aggressive pass checks to make sure that people had the appropriate passes and permits to be in the cities. And if they weren't, they were rounded up and sent back to the homelands. It was so, it was, uh, yeah, it was a system that was, you know, maintained through, through laws that explicitly set up both kind of broad segregation and, and discrimination in terms of kind of where people could live and who they could live with, but also tried to regulate people's everyday interactions, right? With separate buses and separate entrances to the trains and, you know, all of the kind of separate amenities, uh, restrictions on on interracial marriages and, and things like that. Can I ask you like um, a question that might be beyond the scope of, of your sort of, mm. uh, of your work? A system like that, a deeply racist, un, almost, uh, not almost, unnatural system, um, do you think apartheid is always destined to fail it's just a matter of when and how those systems get broken down um or is there a different steady state that they can exist in i mean i think we've seen apartheid systems you know at, at a very at a range of scales that um that have had mechanisms for kind of like reform and and an adjustment to try to contain the resistance, which is naturally right, is created, is created through that kind of system. The system is full of contradictions. It's very it it it, it generates anger and resentment and resistance on the part of, of the population that's being contained and controlled um, and exploited. And you know, there's a, so it's, it's necessarily unstable. It's necessarily crisis ridden. It's generating right constant crises that have to be contained and addressed. And sometimes these systems are able to, to do that, right? Yeah. Either through, you know, providing people little glimmers of hope that in the future things will get better or in minor reforms or, you know, increasingly, I think through, through the deployment of extraordinary forms of violence to maintain that system. But but it keeps breaking down. It keeps breaking down. Um, the reason why I ask is because I always think to myself, like the, the situation in Palestine, you know, inshallah, like, I'm like, it's gotta, it's gotta end somehow. I mean, it's gotta end. It almost has to like almost eat itself. This level of 
in, you know, institutionalized mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. Uh, systemic hatred and violence. But, but I must fundamentally understand the trajectory, the historical trajectory of these types of systems. I mean, I think we see it, it, it keeps breaking down, right? It's not a sustainable system. It's not something that, that the Palestinians are accepting or will ever accept. Uh, and so it is, you know, I mean, I think it is bound to, to erupt in a very, in a variety of different ways, right? Whether that's mass protests, like we saw in the first Intifada, or the kind of, you know, militarized resistance of the second Intifada or, 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 you know, the eruption of, of October 7th, uh, where that, that the vision, the idea that, that, that the Israeli military could contain two and a half million people in the Gaza Strip indefinitely. I think that, that fantasy is, is shattered now. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about South Africa for a second. Um, sure. You know, like on social media, people are, you know, posting photos of Mandela wearing kafiyas and mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. of transnational solidarity between these two peoples. Um, is that overblown or is that is there something to that uh, type of um, solidarity? No, it's very real. It's, it's, it's extraordinarily real. Um, and it's... It's really incredibly beautiful um, to see the the way that South Africans stand up in solidarity with Palestinians. Um, the uh, you know there's a very active Palestine solidarity movement in South Africa. It it garners a tremendous amount of support, um, widespread support, particularly in the black townships. Uh, there's you know, there's a, a a general understanding that what Palestinians are going through, you know, is is in some ways quite similar to what what South Africans experienced under apartheid, um, and and that 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 there's a recipro- there's a you know a reciprocal understanding as well. I think in 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 the last twenty years, there have been numerous delegations of of South Africans who've gone to Palestine to to witness the occupation, to stand in solidarity with Palestinian people and, you know, what they continually say upon and reflect after these experiences is just how familiar it feels. Um, and at the same time, Palestinians, you know, have, have gone to South Africa, right? I mean, South Africa in many ways is, is held up as a beacon of the possibility of overcoming an apartheid system of envisioning a different kind of future where people can live together, right? In a single state and, uh, and you know what was once held out as as an impossibility is is very much a reality. It's not ideal, and I, and I write about that quite a bit. But um, you know that 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 possibility is still there. So Palestinians have gone to South to South Africa, and they're you know they're they're continually just uplifted by the reception that they experience there, uh, the popular reception that they experience, but also. Um, you know, look, look, look to South Africa as, as, as a possible, as a possible future. At the yeah. same time, I, I do want to just kind of point out the South African government has, you know, there, there are key figures within the government that have been very supportive of Palestine. Uh, and, you know, they've, 
recently, I believe, removed their embassy from South Africa, from Israel, and then are you know cutting diplomatic relationships. Um, so there's the that that the very you know kind of popular Palestine solidarity movement in South Africa is you know also reaching the levels of government and has able to kind of you know, sh shape government policy in relation to to the Middle East. Can you walk me through just like to an un uneducated person? What were the steps needed in order for apartheid to be dismantled in South Africa? And what did that next phase of peace and reconciliation sort of look like? Mm -hmm. So that I can begin to understand what it would even take for that type of thing to happen. I mean, the, 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 the South African liberation movement, you know, is as old as, as, as the colonization of South Africa. Yeah. Um, in the, in the early 20th century, the, you know, the, the, the South African government passed a, a, what they call the Native Land Act, which confined African peoples to just 13% of the land. And at that point, the, a, a political party began to emerge demanding equal rights for, for Black South Africans. Um, and that, that party eventually became, you know, what, what's known today as the African National Con Congress, the party of Nelson Mandela, which is now the ruling party. Um, in the, 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 but, the, but the story of liberation is, is not a, kind of a neat, simple story of right, the, 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 the African National Congress moving clearly to victory. Uh, by the by, the nineteen fifties, as as liberation movements across the African continent were really picking up steam, there was really intense discussion and debate about what liberation would look like in South Africa. Right, the 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 groups organized around the African National Congress and the South African Communist Party organized something called the 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 Congress of the People, where they came together and they charted out uh, a charter called the Freedom Charter, which outlined a vision of, of a unified, single democratic state where everyone would live together. Um, but the movement, you know, it, it was moving very slowly. Um, they were getting no traction from the South African government. There were constant kind of protests breaking out um, past when, when, when the South African government was enforcing these past laws, people were, were protesting, burning their passes, burning their permits, and the, the government responded with severe repression, right? Firing on, on unarmed protesters, uh, massacring people. And, you know, this, this intensified the, the kind of sparked the turn towards armed struggle in the 1960s, uh, which was violently repressed by the South African government. Most of the political parties engaged in that were, were declared illegal, were exiled or arrested. Um, by the by the by the late 60s during this time there was also kind of the emergence the, the emergence from the 19 after the congress of the people we started to see demands for boycotts right and those boycotts picked up in the 60s continued into the 70s into the 80s uh, so this was a very long struggle right this was a very long term battle to gain international support for boycotts and divestments of the south african companies and the south african and sanctions on the south african government during the 70s, we started to see much more um, labor movement activism. The South African capitalist economy fundamentally relied upon black workers, right? It, it, it needed their labor. And so that gave people a tremendous amount of power 
to be able to shut down the economy by going on strike, by organizing labor movements. Um, and in the 70s also witnessed the emergence of something called the Black Consciousness Movement, which was about kind of rejecting the kinds of negative, the negative, the negativity, the anti-Blackness that was so powerful in South Africa, right? It was about kind of reclaiming pride in Blackness and, and redefining Blackness because South Africa, the South African population was not just, right, white and Black. The, the British, when they, when they established control over South Africa, they brought indentured workers from India, a very large number of indentured workers from India. Um, and then on the, on the far, there, there was also another population of multi, a multiracial population that was officially labeled colored, right? So all of these groups kind of, at, you know, that the African population, the Indian, the, the, the so-called colored population were all segregated separately, treated separately, and, you know, through a system of divide and rule. Part of what the Black consciousness movement was about was redefining the concept of Black to incorporate all of the people who were oppressed by this apartheid regime so that Indian people and so-called colored people and, and Africans would all kind of adopt a, a shared identity as Black, as being oppressed by this apartheid system. And the, the, black, the emergence of the Black consciousness movement sparked kind of popular uprisings in the townships uh, starting in, in 1976 and, and building through the 1980s. Uh, and so by the 1980s, what you had was, right, there was still kind of remnants of the armed struggle piece. There was the international pressure to build boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. There were kind of a very active labor movement that was shutting down factories. And there were these kind of popular uprisings in the townships. And they were all into integrated and incorporated and you know that was all of that together which created the conditions in which south african capitalists ended up recognizing that the system could no longer continue and so some of the leading south african capitalists actually reached out to the anc which was very closely aligned with the south african communist party and they 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 pitched this vision of you know, we need to bring an end to apartheid. We're ready to bring down these, these laws, um, the, this kind of official state racism. But, you know, only if you're willing to kind of let go of some of this talk about socialism and the redistribution of land and the redistribution of wealth. And so it created the conditions where, you know, the possibility for this kind of a compromise really emerged. So, yeah. It's interesting. So like the idea that if capitalism is part of the system, the, the, the racist structure, it's also the only thing that will dismantle the structure. It, um, I mean, this was not a, this was not a, an easy compromise, right? And there were very active movements in South Africa during the eighties that rejected that idea of a compromise. Yeah. Right. I mean, what, and, and this, this speaks to the conditions in South Africa today. Um, you know, the, while the ANC and the South African Communist Party were envisioning what they, what they thought of as a two-stage struggle, that first the Black South Africans would bring down the apartheid state and achieve legal equality for everyone. And then once Black people gained the power to vote and participate in the elections, then they could continue on to a, a second stage of a struggle, which would be about Kind of economic transformation 
and you know bringing about some more more of a socialist vision for the future but the 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 black left like the, the black radical tradition in south africa rejected that vision they said that you know we can't separate out the the racist state from the system of racial capitalism and that in fact what we need is you know is a struggle that that addresses all of that at the same time and the concern here was that you know that this that the white capitalists, the white elites, were reaching out to to aspiring black middle class leadership and were offering them a vision in which they would, you know, be able to kind of move into into kind of political leadership positions, but also you know positions within the the business community and mm. and claim some wealth for them, but not really addressing the the daily living conditions of the black working class and poor black folks. And, and that's a big part of what's, what's played out in South Africa in the last 30 years is that, um, you know, there, there's been transformation at the top. Um, there's a new black middle class, a new black elite, black political parties that, that, uh, you know, that govern the state, but, but at the bottom, the conditions for working class, black people have have not fundamentally transformed. Yeah. Um, and, and there's, so there's, there's constant mobilization and movement to try to, you know, create the, the kind of changes that people were always envisioning and hoping for. Yeah. I was speaking to, uh, on a, a, a recent trip I was on, I, I met a South African, uh, a woman who was telling me she saw a Palestine sticker that I had on my phone and we were talking about it and I was asking her, you know, what does post-apartheid South Africa look like, actually, let me ask, tell you exactly what I said. I said, as a black South African, how do you feel when people yearn for post-apartheid South Africa type conditions when they're talking about Palestine? Are you thinking to yourself, yes, we've made it to the promised land and I hope you have, you reach the promised land too. Or are you th thinking to yourself, no, 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 guys, you have no idea what this is really like. And we didn't talk for that long, but she was like, you should look up a guy named Chris Haney and, and, and um, read about Chris Haney. So um, I want to I wanna ask you about, about him and about that type of political thought, but also the question that I asked her, which was, do you feel like... Um, there are lessons from that, uh, from South Africa that we should try to apply to um, Palestinian liberation. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a really important question, uh, and that's the question that that I really struggled with and, and tried to write about in neoliberal apartheid, uh, which just came out. I guess it's been five years, six years now. Um, yeah, Chris Haney was a, you know, a political figure involved with the African National Congress, but he was very closely aligned with grassroots movements. And he was, you know, pushing the ANC to not compromise so much. Right? One, of the, one of the key compromises that the ANC made in the early 1990s as they were kind of negotiating an end to apartheid was that, that the state wouldn't touch the current distribution of private property, right? Knowing very well that the private property, which was in the hands, you know, concentrated in the hands of the white minority, had been 
you know, stolen over centuries, right, from, from the African population. But the ANC, you know, that the, this was one of the conditions that the, that the, the Africana Nationalist Party, it, you know, insisted upon is that you can't, you can't just take that land and redistribute it. Um, yeah. Right. And, and the United States and the World Bank and the IMF were saying the very same thing, right? If, if, if you start redistributing land, nobody's going to invest in South Africa. And there was tremendous amount of pressure on the South Africa, on the a ANC to accept that kind of a deal. And they did, right? Chris Henney was one of the people who was kind of pushing against that, that vision um, and that kind of a compromise. So in terms of lessons, look, I, I mean, I think that there's tremendous amount of lessons to be learned from the success of the South African liberation movement, right? Holding out a vision of a, of a single democratic state where everyone could live together, you know, um, envisioning that, that, that possibility of kind of secular and non-racial democracy, uh, is really, I think, a cornerstone of, you know, what became the possibility uh, of post-apartheid South Africa. And, and that's something that, that, you know, a lot of Palestinians and, and increasingly, I think, Israelis, you know, Israelis as well, some are turning to, you know, or, or were until October 7th, I don't know now, but, you know, that, that the idea that there would be a possibility to build uh, a state, you know, based on mutual recognition and coexistence um, is really powerful. And, and I think that that is still why, why so many Palestinians look to South Africa as a model to emulate. At the same time, you know, there's, there's lessons to be learned from the limitations of transformation in post-apartheid South Africa. And I think that that very much has to do with, you know, realizing that, that even if all Palestinians, even if the, the occupation ended, and the Palestinians who are citizens of Israel gained formal legal equality and the refugees earned the right to return, right? And there was formal legal equality for everyone. Uh, that, that that might not be sufficient to really create, bring about real transformation, right? As long as kind of the land and the economy are, are in the hands of you know, in the hands of the people who can currently control it, right? So could there be ways to envision, uh, you know, ethical, fair forms of, of redistribution of wealth and land? Could there be ways to, you know, address at the, also the, the kind of lasting negative racist portrayals of Palestinians? I mean, I think that hasn't really transformed in South Africa. There's still, you know, amongst the white, population, there's still very you know, violent, negative, racist stereotypes about black people as criminals, right? And, and that's, you know, spurred the expansion of a private security industry, which is, you know, intent on protecting white wealth and, and by, by containing and repressing and removing, you know, working class black people from wealthy neighborhoods. No. So there's a lot that has to go into it besides just the, 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 the formal legal system that gets established. Can you talk about the term neoliberal in this case and why you make that distinction of neoliberal apartheid as 
as opposed mm-hmm. to just mm-hmm. apartheid on its own. Now, when I talk about neoliberalism, what I'm talking about is kind of a set of a set of economic policies that has been, you know, predominant throughout the world since the 1980s. Really, you know, pushed first by people like Thatcher and Reagan, uh, but even before that, tested in places like Chile uh, by by Milton Friedman and, and mm-hmm. economists trained at the University of Chicago, and the the basic proposition here right is that is that people should be left on their own to kind of left on their own without the state intervening to provide welfare or anything that people are on their own to survive in the world right just through the operation of a free market economy uh, what what it marked what what the rise of neoliberalism marked was a real shift away from the kind of welfare state politics of the the 30s through the 70s, right? When when governments, you know, invested in in kind of trying to create jobs for people, trying to provide welfare and unemployment support for people who couldn't get jobs, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of spending on on public housing, on public education, on public health. Um, that the neoliberal revolution of the 80s and the 90s has been about kind of cutting back on on you know on spending on social services right and that rather rather than the government providing any kind of support uh it's about investing in in the ability of private corporations to mm-hmm. to do what they want right um and in part that's that's been very much about Free a vision of free trade policies, cutting backs on the, the kind of taxes that corporations would have to pay in order to move things across borders, which has allowed multi the, the the real growth of multinational corporations, which can, you know, sh- shut down a factory in one country, open it up in another where there's they can they can hire people to work for much lower wages, and then bring the products back across the border without having to pay any taxes on them and sell them. Supposedly, it's gonna they'll be able to sell them for less money, but they never do, right? They always sell them for the same amount of money and just pocket the the additional profit, right? So, it's these policies that have throughout the world, throughout the world, have you know vastly expanded the kinds of inequality that we see, um, you know, in, in the United States, in 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 individual countries, but also you know, globally, we see that this concentration of wealth in the hands of a tiny elite uh, and at the same time right both the the really intense forms of of exploitation of racialized working class populations who are being paid very low wages to do very difficult and dangerous and draining work or or they're eliminated from the economy altogether right their work their labor is seen as 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 disposable, as unnecessary, as surplus, um, and and this is this is really important for understanding what's going on in Palestine today, as well as what's going on in South Africa today. A big part of the the, the political and economic transition that took place in South Africa was that the new government adopt you know of the African National Congress in the in the nineteen nineties adopted these neoliberal policies under pressure from the United States and the World Bank and the IMF. And the policies themselves have enabled the growth of a small 
black elite alongside the old white elite. But you know, many of the, the, the jobs and the working conditions of, of black folks, of, of, of poor and working class black communities in South Africa have been completely degraded, mm. right? The, the unions have been broken down. The, the wages are, 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 you know, not survival living wages. Uh, people are hired on, you know, short-term contracts without any stability. And that's, you know, that's intensified that inequality that exists in South Africa. So South Africa today is now oftentimes ranked as the, the single most unequal country in the world. And we've seen the same thing in, 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 in Palestine. Um, and this is a really key part of, of what I try to do in the book. What, right. What, what my, what I, I try to document the shift in the political economy of Israeli settler colonialism during the 1990s. So after occupying the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in 1967, Israel forcibly incorporated the Palestinian population into the Israeli economy as low wage workers, as captive markets. So, you know, throughout the seventies into the eighties, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians crossed the green line every day to work inside Israel and thousands more worked in, in factories in the occupied territories that were subcontracting for Israeli corporations. But during the 1990s, Israel used this neoliberal restructuring to engineer the disposability of the Palestinian workers. They adopted free trade agreements with Egypt and Jordan that allowed Israeli corporations to outsource a lot of the low-wage manufacturing that had been done by Palestinians to even lower-wage workers in Egypt and Jordan. Uh, they shifted from an economy that was based on kind of production for local consumption towards this high-tech economy that, that was you know, part of the globalizing world, right? And, and that shift to high-tech production eliminated a lot of kind of low-wage right, jobs. Mm. Um, they brought, they, they brought hundreds of thousands of migrant workers from around the world, as well as, you know, nearly a million Russian Jews moved to Israel in the 1990s and they all right, competed with Palestinians for the remaining low wage work. So this, these shifts, these economic shifts eliminated, largely eliminated the Israeli demand for Palestinian workers. And that is what it has allowed Israel to intensify its settler colonial project by, by containing the occupied Palestinian population into these isolated enclosures, sealing because, off the because the, they don't need them anymore. Is that because why? they don't need them anymore? Right, they don't need them anymore. So they seal they 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 contain them in the enclosures. They 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 seal off these enclosures with walls and checkpoints, and then they aggressively colonize the land that remains. Uh, so the West Bank, for instance, has been right fragmented, divided into hundreds of separate Palestinian enclaves that are surrounded by settlements and checkpoints and roads. And the Gaza Strip itself is, is the largest zone of concentrated racialized abandonment in Palestine. You had mentioned this a few times already, sort of the, the BDS movement, the boycott, sanction, divest uh, movement that was so powerful in, in South Africa. Do you feel like that is a powerful tool, an overrated tool, a plausible tool? to support the liberation of um, Palestine? I think it's a really important tool. I think it can't be the only tool, right? I mean, we, you know, when we, we talked earlier about South Africa, I mean, there was a combination of all of these different things that were happening, right? The popular uprisings, the workers' movement, the BDS, that were still those kind of remnants of armed struggle. All of that converged together in the, 
in the 90s, in the 80s and into the 90s to, to really create the conditions in South Africa. One of the things that, you know, that, that marks the shift in the way that, that apartheid operates in, in, in Palestine is that because Israelis don't rely upon Palestinian workers anymore, the real power that the black workers had to shut down the economy isn't there anymore for Palestinian workers. During the first Intifada, they, there were regular strikes. Strikes was a key feature of the first Intifada and you know, they were effective, uh, but that's not there anymore. So, um, so that's, you know, that's one piece that's, that's not there in Palestinians struggle to find, you know, other ways of kind of putting real pressure on is on the Israeli state and on Israeli corporations. And in the absence of that, you know, BDS becomes a really powerful tool for, for a number of reasons. I think, um, on the one hand, it, it, because it asks, right, civil society organizations, whether that's churches or schools or unions or co-ops, right, food co-ops, whatever it might be to, to, to engage in boycotts and to review their investment strategies, right? Like uh, retirement funds to review their investment strategies. Yeah. It, it, it really kind of multiplies the sites where discussions and debates about Palestine and Israel are taking place. And it creates a, the conditions for, for, you know, movements to really ask people to take a stand. Um, and so as, as a, as a way of kind of facilitating mobilization at the grassroots level, it's, it's incredibly powerful, right? It's, uh, and, and it's effective. I mean, we've seen, you know, a, a string of successes in BDS campaigns around uh, over the last, you know, couple of decades. Uh, we've also seen an investment by the Israeli government in trying to suppress uh, BDS. We've seen, you know, efforts to pass laws in states and cities throughout the United States to try to make it impossible to organize you know, BDS campaigns. You know, at the same time, any kind of international pressure, right? International mobilizations, international pressure is, is really important. Um, and, and I think that, it, you know, we're seeing the, the impacts of it as kind of popular opinion is shifting in the West yeah. around what's going on in Palestine. Is um, it? You feel it? I, I do feel it. I do feel it. I, I, I feel it um, in general over the last, you know, 20 years. I feel it, you know, in a heightened way right now. Um, but it's obviously, right, not enough. I mean, political, pub public opinion doesn't translate into political policy, right? When we have governments that are, uh, democratic systems are, are, are set up to be, to, to cater to elites who are able to fund lobby groups to support whatever policies that they have in mind. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think that the real, the real challenge is, you know, the ability to kind of build and sustain grassroots movements in Palestine yeah. um, that the BDS movements can support, right? Um, and that's the real, that's the real challenge. The, the fragmentation of the territory, the you know, depressing conditions of, of intense poverty, unemployment and repression that the Palestinians face make it really difficult to kind of sustain the, the united 
coordinated forms of organization that we saw in the Unity Intifada a couple of years ago, or the Unity Uprising. So, and and that you know, I think that that is really where what what will ultimately have to drive transformation is is finding ways to build and support that. Yeah. Um. So for those listening to the podcast who can't see you over your right shoulder, there's a poster of Hassan Kanafani. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm in addition to him, what voices do you feel like are, um, speaking to some of the issues that you're talking about in Palestine, but also globally, like who is the, who is the Mandela? Who is the Hani Mm -hmm. that you feel like is coming that is, uh, seeing the situation, uh, clear eyed. I guess I, I would look to a, a few different formations uh, that I, you know, see as providing some real possibility. Um, one is that there is sort of a, a, a campaign of, of Israeli and Palestinian leftists calling for a, a single democratic state solution, right? The kind of one democratic state campaign is there um, as, as and and they are doing some really important work to outline, you know, what kind of an, an ethical form of decolonization could look like um, and what it would take to get to the stage where, you know, Palestinians and Israelis live together uh, in a, in 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 conditions of 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 real equity and justice. Um, so I think that that's a really key piece. Uh, I've been you know, over the last, over the last 10 years, I mean, for, there's been very long histories of kind of black Palestine solidarity, particularly here in the United States, but, but, you know, that extends obviously to South Africa, to Brazil, to other places, but, um, here in the United States in particular, you know, the, there have been real expansion of that possibility. The way that, that movements have really come together since 2014 in particular, uh, to articulate, you know, to, to, to learn about each other's struggles, to learn about each other's conditions and to understand that, that the, the, the systems that they're up against are, are similar, but distinct. And then they're linked, right? They, they're not saying we're facing the same system. They're saying we're facing different systems that are unique based on our own histories, but, but they're quite similar, right? In terms of the, 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 the kind of racial capitalist economic system that's eliminating work opportunities and, and deepening the, the kind of racialized poverty in terms of the state violence, which is being used to contain and, and oppress uh, black and Palestinian people. Um, and then, so they're similar, but they're also linked, right? Because of particularly the, the, the you know, intense U.S. support for Israel, unconditional, uh, the joint training, the flows of weapons, and, you know, and, 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 ideas about how to police people between Israel and the United States. Um, and that kind of core of understanding is really spreading. Uh, you know, we, we saw also, uh, you know, we're seeing a, a big expansion of, of Palestinian and indigenous uh, solidarity. Uh, after Standing Rock in particular, right, we saw a, a really intense kind of coming together of Palestinian and, and Native American peoples 
and then all of the kind of core Palestine solidarity movements within the United States now are really embracing this idea of of joint struggle and understanding that you know really transforming U.S. support for Israel also means transforming the United States oh. in ways that 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 bring about liberation for for Black and Indigenous and immigrant peoples here. Uh, and yeah. we saw that, you know, some really intense uh, protests earlier this week where the movement leaders, Palestinian immigrant rights and, and black movement leaders were, you know, protesting at the, at the U.S. Capitol. This obviously the, won't be earlier this week by the time folks get to hear this. But um, yeah, protesting against, you know, efforts by the Biden administration to work out some sort of a deal with Republicans that would lead to funding for Israel. Israeli military, as well as funding for militarizing the U.S. border. Yeah. Um, and folks are seeing like, we know we need to work together to resist both of these things. When did the support for the apartheid regime in South Africa begin to dwindle from places in Europe and in, mm. uh, in the U.S.? What did it take for that to actually start to happen? Were I mean, they I the last to switch? Yeah. They, they were the U.S. in particular. I think was was the last to really come around. Um, it took the the years of mobilizing, of organizing. It took the kind of popular uprisings that were happening in the occupied, ter in 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 uh, the South African townships, which were starting to you know which got more TV coverage by the by the eighties. You were able to see the kind of violence in in really intense ways, um, and you know. People use were able to use that to build really solid campaigns, calling for boycotts and divestments. Um, and you know, workers, the 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 ability of the the South African trade union movement, right? They were able to send workers delegations to meet with you know unionists in in Europe and the United States and around the world to kind of make the case for for bringing about that the end of apartheid. Um, there's one other group, though, that I want to mention that it's just about kind of envisioning a future. There's uh, been a, a real important expansion in the last few years here in the United States, but globally, um, of the Palestinian feminist collective, mm. of, of groups that are, you know, really insisting that, that Palestine is a feminist issue um, and, you know, tied up with kind of feminist movements for abolition. Uh, here in the United States for abolishing prisons and police and tying that together with, you know, visions for what would it take to really transform, you know, a, a system of, 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 of colonialism and empire. And so they are outlining feminist visions for kind of abolishing militarism and war alongside prisons and police. And, and I think that that's a really absolutely essential part of envisioning the future super interesting um andy before i let you go um i'm curious if you have any uh reading recommendations for folks who are interested in learning not only about uh south africa but also about these sort of like transnational movements and uh and uh ideally they're relevant to palestine or any of the anti-colonial uh, movements uh mm-hmm yeah, can I can I send you a, a short reading list that you can plug into the comments or something sure. like that? Sure. Yeah. Would that work? I'll yeah, that. yeah, for sure. Yeah. 
so yeah um yeah that's a uh, are you working on anything these days i've just finished up with a a group of colleagues um a book on policing in chicago that'll be coming out next summer uh that is really kind of thinking about policing as a as a transnational imperial project um so the way that the local police in Chicago work closely with national security agencies and, and federal immigration authorities to target Black and Latinx and Arab and Muslim communities in the United States. Mm. Thinking about how you know, yeah, we can we can we can think about Chicago, but we have to understand that that these the agencies operating here are tied into global networks of repression that you know carry out similar projects throughout the world. Nice. So that'll be coming out next summer. Uh, it's called Imperial Policing, Weaponized Data in Carceral Chicago. Andy, thanks so much, man. This um, It's a very hard time. Both you and I are sick. I hope uh, people can't tell, but um, I'm appreci- I appreciate you sharing this stuff. It's uh, super important. So thanks so much. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate, uh, yeah, I appreciate the work that y'all are doing, and I hope you, hope you feel better soon. Thanks so much.